0: Welcome back to another full crew edition of At The Buzzer. You got a nice break from myself last week and uh, last episode with special guest Chase Howell hosting the podcast. Special co-host at this point. Um, I am your not-so-special co-host, Jack Barsh. And then the most special co-host is over there, Sam Attivier. How are you, Sam?
1: I'm well. I'm a little... um... Annoyed, because me and Chase recorded that podcast on, uh, I think, Friday evening, and it just got published today, which is Wednesday, which we're recording again, and we talked you recruiting, and I published it at like 9.30, and literally 20 minutes later, it was irrelevant.
0: Well, look, in the Fast Plays world <laughs> that is current, present-day sports reporting, look, things are flying around. A bunch of leagues are active right now. It's
1: hard. It's hard to stay up, updated. The podcast was an hour, 10 minutes, and you didn't even get to listen to a third of it before it was updated. That's absurd. <laughs> I'm upset. Is this, is
0: this finally our pivot into live streaming instead of recording? Is that what I'm hearing?
1: It, it depends on when this gets published, because if this gets published next week, we'll see.
0: You know, that's what I would bet it is, but um, luckily that the main change can't happen again next week um, because today is, it's hard to believe, the late signing day for college basketball. Um, This is not on anyone's mind right now, and I honestly forgot it happened until it happened, so. I
1: didn't know it existed.
0: Late signing day?
1: Well, I mean, like, hypothetically, I did know it existed, but I just didn't. I I had never noticed it in my life before. (laughs)
0: That's funny because that's usually where Tad does some of his best work. Um, he does – last the last time he got McKinley Wright uh, – not the last time, sorry, 2017 recruiting class, he got McKinley Wright and Evan Batty, I believe, in the late signing day. George King was a late signing day addition, a late, late signing day addition. Andre Roberson Evan was a late Batty, signing day guy.
1: Evan Batty signed
0: really early. Hmm. Maybe it was McKinley and Lazar Nikolic. Maybe it was just McKinley. I don't know. Um,
1: yeah, well, I know Batty and Bay committed the same day, which was like... And the, Yeah, and they were on days. their visit with Schwartz. That's right. Yeah.
0: I wrote um, up
1: those articles. What? I wrote up those articles and then had to write like five articles that day because so I was covering like three that's of them. That's right. Uh, Lucas Seward, I believe, was also a late signing day. So... Speaking of, <laughs> okay, okay. I'll, I'll use that segment to, to, to go into what the news of today is. Today being Wednesday, the 15th. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Buffs have replaced um, their German-Brazilian player <laughs> with a Brazilian-German player, for mm-hmm. which I'm very excited about. So they just signed um, Tristan da Silva, um, who's uh, 18, he's about to turn 19. He comes from Munich, Germany, part of the Bayern Munich Music Academy. And we know his face because he has the exact same face as his brother, um, who's Oscar De Silva, the star player from Stanford, who CU fans would know from Evan Batty, almost killing.
0: And I wonder, I, wonder, I don't think that's why he's on the CU's radar, but I wonder if the way that that was handled – on CU side and Stanford side, that whole incident um, at least made his parents more comfortable with CU uh, because that whole, I mean, obviously it was just like crazy situation. I don't think we're ever going to see it again. And both sides, I mean, both sides handle it really, really well. And I wonder if that's what um, helped get CU on his radar. Not that, I mean, we don't really even know, anything about who else was recruiting him. We don't know anything about ha- the competition that CU beat for his signature. We do know his bloodlines are good. Um, I don't know. He's a pretty interesting prospect.
1: Yeah, like, like I was trying to find information on him, and I could find nothing except for on YouTube. I found some clips. Um, so, like, as far as I know, I wrote the first scouting report for him. <laughs> <laughs> I mean...
0: Like you said, his his older brother's Oscar De Silva, who completely sunned Tyler Bay the second time we played Stanford. But he, uh, he's more of an inside player. He's, he's tough, rebounds really well, um, good on-ball defender. And I think definitely the first and the third point apply to Tristan. I think Tristan's a really good on-ball defender, especially on the perimeter for how tall he is. He has quick hands, and he, he can move his hips pretty well. But uh, he's, I don't know. He's a completely different player on offense.
1: Yeah, I mean he he from what I saw, which was it looked like playing of like high school competition in some empty gym. Um he like he doesn't look six foot eight in what I saw, but he like he moves fluidly and he really likes to attack off the dribble and he has a really clean jumper that you notice too. Um Yeah,
0: one of my favorite things about him because I watched Tyler Bay do the opposite of this for three years is that he catches the ball and then it goes up into the shot, which makes it 8 million times easier when you're tall to get a shot off quickly. Um, Tyler Bay would catch a ball and then bring it down and go into his full shooting motion, which is a thing a lot of people do, but um, Tristan can shoot covered way easier like if, if there's a token hand in his face because he doesn't bring the ball down and he's a really high release point. I like both of those things um, for a big guy.
1: I also, I kind of like his, like, I see him kind of as uh, the combo forward who can space the floor, create off the dribble a little bit, and maybe has, like, some offensive versatility where, like, he needs to get a bucket. I think that's what he could develop into. He's just a three-level scorer who works best as a, uh, like, a supporting player.
0: You know what I'm saying? Uh, yeah, I don't think he's ever going to be a number one option. I don't think you necessarily want him to be, you know, his best case, I would say is uh, similar to Oscar to silver where he'll get you tough buckets. You can throw it to him and he'll get you a bucket or a foul if you need to really, really good defender. Um, and the main thing, another thing you look at if you watch some of his clips is I, I like the fact that he, the, the ball never sticks to him. Like even after he passes and then gets a token pass back, he's always moving even without the ball, um, and you need guys like that around people who the ball will stick to, because it, it the the offense will never fail as a function of of his um, skill set if that if that makes sense. Even if he yeah, can't no, get you, his shot where he is, he's gonna move to get a better
1: shot naturally, which is huge. You said it better than I could have. That that's kind of what I was going for. That description is like. He's the supporting player who can knock down a shot but he's going to keep the ball moving. And, like, just that type of player is so key as, like, your, like, fourth best player, for instance. Like, someone who can compete on defense, um, hit shots, and move the ball. Like, an excellent team player. Dare I say, Nicholas Batum. <laughs> <laughs> uh, wow, well, you know what?
0: I actually, yeah, Nicholas Batum is a pretty good comparison. That might be a better one than his brother, actually. I don't think good his one. brother's a good comparison. Um... It's, I said this on Twitter, but it's funny. When you add this whole class together, and we can talk quickly. We, I'm sure you guys talked about Jabari Parker and Jariah Horn, but it's – the I don't know. What a classic Tad thing where I feel like there's now seven players that are all around the same height and kind of similar body shape. But to me, there's pretty big differences in, in their – the way that they play. Like I don't – I think Deshaun Schwartz is a pretty different profile than Tristan De Silva, but a lot of their measurements are going to be similar. And it's the same with like Jabari Walker and Jariah Horn and, um, oh, geez, uh, Alexander Strading and, um, I don't know, a bunch of players. And Luke O'Brien actually has pretty similar measurements to Tristan DeSoto. But yeah. they all play differently.
1: Same with Clifford, Nick Clifford. I like the idea of having just a team full of six foot seven, six foot eight guys <laughs> who are all just like smart can switch everywhere and they all have skills that complement each other. I think yeah. that's a big deal. Like like you're going to hate me for saying this is like positionless basketball in the NBA, but like it makes sense to have that much like the homogeneity with defense and the switching and then the the diversity of skill sets. I think that that is a real sweet spot for basketball. Tad has been trying to do
0: that since he started here and um he's had I don't know. I think if the we can, I mean, this could be a whole separate like two hour podcast. But if the twenty what is it thirteen class panned out, that's what that would have been, right? Because if you look at that class, you have TreShaun Fletcher, Deron Hopkins, Dustin Thomas. You have um, oh god, who am I missing? There's there's three more people. But basically, you have six guys, five guys that all have around the same measurements and, and ability on defense, but they all act completely differently on offense. And I think that was a big, what he was pushing for? Uh, sorry. And then you, you end, uh, you have Wesley Gordon in that freshman class. You have, um, he was a red shirt freshman to be fair. And then you add guys like um, David Johnson the year before, like those are all similar physical profiles. And like you said, it allows him to do those heavy switches that he does on defense all the time. Uh, while having completely different
1: offensive games. Yeah, I uh, I don't know how this replaces, like, Tyler Bay's production and his defense, but I do like that it's a change, because you can't get a one-for-one replacement for Tyler Bay. You're going to lose something, because you don't get a first-round NBA talent for free at CU. You have to develop it. Yeah. Um, so that player wasn't really available. They didn't really have that developed underneath Tyler Bay. Um, this doesn't mean, like, Evan Batty is going to be the center, which he calls himself a power forward, but, like, if he could be, like, a playmaking point center who can just wall off the paint and get rebounds, that would be great. You and Chase already
0: covered these pretty extensively, but I'll just really quick go through some of my Jabari Walker and Jariah Horn musings. Um, Part of, like, I, I said this on Twitter as well, but Like you said, we, there's, there's nothing that I'm seeing in this class that says we can replace Tyler Bay 14 and 10 out of the gate. We can't, I don't think, I I don't think that, like you said, CU is built to be a program that can just lose talent like that and then replace it. Um, what is there in its place is I think that the roster got way more offensively skilled as a whole, um you lose Shane Gatling, you lose Lucas Seward, you lose Tyler Bay, you lose Daylon Coons, you lose Jacob Dombeck. Did I get, is that all of them? Uh, yeah, that's all. Yeah, so I, I think out of those, Lucas Seward was probably the most skilled offensively. And um, a lot of his production can be replaced by Jariah Horn. So Jariah Horn is also a volume three-point shooter who can throw it pretty – he can – Basically, I, I don't know. Percentage-wise, probably exactly replaced what Lucas was doing. He also can slash better than Lucas was. He's more comfortable scoring off the dribble, so uh, I think he's he's more skilled than Lucas in that sense.
1: Walker, yeah, I don't think, as far as Lucas Stewart goes, like he's good in the post, and he's like he's a he's a really good three point shooter, obviously when his confidence is on. But I think he's a very limited player because of his lack of athleticism in ball handling. So I think Jura Horn is an improvement. In a lot of ways, in that
0: respect. Right, and and it's the same. It's the same with um like Kuntz, Gatling, and Dombek. I'm going to lump those together. Kuntz and Dombek absolutely did almost offer no um offensive production this year. I mean, Gatling was hot and cold, mostly cold.
1: Kuntz offered a lot of negative stuff. <laughs> you know, just replace him, like like I'm not even joking. Like replace him with Keyshawn Bartholomew, the the redshirt freshman, and like. That's, that's already a massive improvement. Well,
0: Bartholomew is a much better shooter and a more natural lead guard. So I would count that yeah. as a huge boon in, in, in offensive production. The, the place that I'm struggling is, I don't know if CU, maybe they're just abandoning this all together, has the interior scoring ability that it did last year. I don't think it has anything close, actually. Because Lucas was fine Ooh. in the post. Dryhorn is not a, a natural post player. Um, And Tyler Bay also had that. He had a money turnaround jumper. He had the classic 15-foot short jumper. And Walker is definitely not physically ready to step into those minutes, especially on the offensive side.
1: So this roster construction is closer to my dream basketball than yours. Mm -hmm. Space the floor, get a bunch of uh, like shooting and playmaking um, for everybody, and then let your slashers just attack the rim because there's a lot of space to be had. With all these guys, like, literally everybody on the floor is going to be a shooter and someone who can put the ball on the floor. And I really like that. Like, your interior scoring, you don't have to have a post player who can go get a bucket. You can have McKinley Wright with space on space to attack. And you can have Deshaun, I mean, if Deshaun decided to go score, he can have more space. And it's not going to be, like, Tyler Bay did have a good jumper. But he just stood at the dunker spot or posted up like every time he was on the floor. And like he did have some good passes and he did improve, but he was a turnover machine. Yeah, so, he,
0: had, he had a lot of turnovers.
1: that sense, if you if you put Bartholomew on the floor, you put Nick Clifford on the floor and McKinley Wright, like those guys can all attack the basket very well.
0: The, if I'm really quick before we – um I guess we can talk about overall thoughts but if I'm just doing a really quick sketch of what I what I think the team's going to look like I think your five guys who are going to get the most minutes are McKinley, Schwartz, Jariah Horn, Evan Batty and then probably Keyshawn Bartholomew um I would think it, it, the, that if if that's if that's your starting lineup which can work um, I would think that Horn slides in the power forward and everybody shifts to center. And that starting lineup defensively might have a lot of questions, but offensively, um, that's really interesting to me because that's a lot of it's a lot of improved passing and ball handling compared to last year's
1: lineup. Yeah, I'm trying to write the depth chart right now and I'm like I'm forgetting who's on the team right now because there's been so <laughs> But um, Well yeah, I starting as you did. Although I wouldn't mind Dominic Clifford being a starter, um, just because he offers more size and versatility, and then Bartholomew would be like the more natural lead guard off the bench.
0: I don't think Clifford would be the second choice. I think that Parquet would be the second choice for the starting oh, point I, the shooting guard.
1: Exactly, Parquet was the player I forgot about. Um, thank
0: you. So, if, if we Parquet if as a starter, if we walk forward and and we look at Kin, Keyshawn, Schwartz, Horn, and Batty as the starters. The bench would then have to be... I mean, you'd be... I guess Neek would probably be the point guard coming off the bench.
1: Is that right? No. I mean, this is why I would have Bartholomew on the bench is because he can come in... He can play the majority of minutes uh, alongside Wright, but he would be the more natural uh, one-for-one replacement.
0: Yeah. Realistically, I think what would happen is... Bartholomew would probably be the first to go to the bench, and then when Ken gets tired, he would replace him in the starting lineup. Is That's how I would yeah, think that yeah. is. So, if you're looking at the four the, the four minutes before the first TV timeout, Ken and Keyshawn in the same wavelength, and then you take Keyshawn out, and then you take the next four minutes, McKinley's playing eight minutes at the start of the quarter, you take McKinley out, and then you put Keyshawn back in as a lead guard, and you put Parquet in with him.
1: Yeah, I, uh, in I don't think I think that Tad learned, I hope he learned, I don't know how you don't learn at this point, that you cannot be playing without a natural point guard. Like, you cannot have just combo, like, multiple combo guards who don't really know how to initiate. An offense.
0: He's going to keep trying, though. Man, he's going to keep trying.
1: I mean, I guess, like, Clifford is a better natural playmaker than Coons. Um And, like, Gatling was always miscast in that role. Um, but you need someone who can like actually run the offense mm-hmm. and not just turn it over immediately.
0: Um, I think that means the bench is probably going to be, I would guess, eight or nine players max. You're looking at Parquet is probably the first guy off the bench. Um, Walden is probably close up off the bench, assuming his recovery continues as planned, and then. Um, Strading and De Silva and Walker are all probably fighting for some wing slash post minutes. I would guess, you know, straighting goes more towards the center side of minutes, like replacing post players and, um, De Silva goes more towards the small forward side of things, replacing wings and like Deshaun Schwartz uh, and, and Walker has three through five ability, I think. Well, five, no, but three through four ability. So he, he can kind of play both those, especially on defense. I don't know. That's an interesting team. I think you're you're more athletic, but you're also sacrificing a lot of solid defense
1: defense that we had this year. Yeah, and like after last year, like CU so had the highest minutes continuity in the country from year to year. Mm-hmm. And they are losing five players, four of whom were in the rotation. And you're replacing a lot of those with freshmen. So we will be seeing like you put down the depth chart, and you're suddenly relying on a lot of freshmen. Yikes. Um, the guy I forgot about is Maddox Daniels. Oh, I forgot about him, too. I was like, what the... Although, we can't really assume that he's reliable. Because he's extremely mercurial.
0: Um, I think him playing less minutes will probably do both people good. Um, or maybe minutes also, less minutes that he was asked to do stuff he's not good
1: at. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, his role is shoot threes and don't fuck up. And I think that once he has like a year of clarity, like he he did adjust like from JUCO to college basketball, major college basketball, so it was a bit of an adjustment. Um, I think maybe he'll be settled in yeah, as a senior. Um, but yeah, we really need him to not really do much more than that. Well.
0: You hope that adding all of these supplemental ball handlers who, who can be trusted with the ball in the perimeter, like Luke O'Brien, who initiated the offense all four years in high school, Nick Clifford did the same, Bartholomew, who's a natural point guard, um, De Silva can even do some stuff out there if, if I don't think he will, but you're adding a lot of supplemental ball handlers, and hopefully that means that Max can just be the full gunner he's meant to be which means that you don't touch the ball unless you're shooting the ball. That's that's pretty much what I want him to be.
1: And you think you thought Luke O'Brien would redshirt going into next year.
0: Still I still think, think he might redshirt. Um, he's skinny. It's going to be quite a jump for him. And I don't yeah, know. He's,
1: also like, he's transitioning from Colorado prep basketball, so that's always an adjustment.
0: So and is think, Neek, but I think Neek's natural yeah. athletic ability lets him
1: do that quicker. <laughs> I was going to say, like, like Nick is just, like, he doesn't look like the typical star against CU player. He looks like a star who just happens to be dominating CU, or to be dominating Colorado Prep. You know what I'm saying?
0: The thing that's interesting is, hmm, I guess I said that about Luke when I thought he was, like, 6'4 and 6'5 and not 6'7, 6'8 that he looks to be.
1: I think he's grown since he committed to CU.
0: Um, and, you know, you look at his senior highlights, his shot looks mechanically good. He just, his percentage is ass because of how much he had to shoot on Columbine. Like, he he ended up being 29%, I think, from three his senior year. But he shot a lot of threes, and a lot of them appeared to be covered. So, I don't know how much that changes. The,
1: the thing is,
0: I don't know. Looking, the next year's team, basically, 30,000 feet fly over, I think it got, more skilled offensively, and you have a lot more shooting and dribbling options than you did this year. But defensively, you're losing a lot. There's no one that can replace Tyler Bay immediately. I think rebounding, you're also losing a lot, and you're relying a lot of
1: interesting pieces to give you those aspects. Yeah, I think that where this team is going to have to be like great is perimeter defense, um, because like I hate to use like NBA comparisons, but like if you look at, like, the 2016-17-ish the Boston Celtics, um, like, they didn't have any, like, rim protectors. They just had Al Forford, who is probably a good, uh, like, comparison for Evan Batty as a defensive player, someone who's just going to be space. He's going to be in the right position. Mm-hmm. know the angles, rebound decently well. And then he's not really going to block shot, but he can move his feet. And then they surrounded him with just, uh, perimeter guys who can deny post-entry, who can switch a little bit, but mostly just be in the right spot and just hound the perimeter. And I think that's what the best bet for CU basketball will be next year. Um, like, especially if you have Parquet playing a lot of minutes, and you have Dallas Walton as, like, a bench player who's be a specialist. What are your thoughts? Um, like, I think this is going to
0: be an easier team for Tad to coach because it's more in his defensive wheelhouse not necessarily because of the personality on the team. You know, he said multiple times last year was his favorite year ever to coach, which makes sense just because he, you know, he knew all those players for a long time. Um, I think this is more specifically what he can do on defense. Hopefully that shows up. I think we're going to see more zone also just because of the, the long bodies that we're looking at. Um, and I think... Hedging and switching is going to be way bigger, more of a thing next year. The only guy I wouldn't trust to guard one through three is Evan Batty. And even then, he's okay for short stretches. You have to switch him off pretty quick, though. Everyone else that we're looking at, I I would be okay with. Jariah Horn is is not a great defender anyways, um, but he's solid and he can move. So, I don't know. You're you're looking at a team that might be more – I. Hmm. It's going to be
1: weird. I see a lot of question marks. So yeah. it's like Keisha Bartholomew, how ready is he? Like, can he play defense? I guess. Um, mm-hmm. You have Dominic Clifford, of like, how quickly can he adjust? And I think he can adjust quickly. Um, but because I think he, with his skill set, he has to be like an instant contributor. Um, you can't have like a semi redshirt year for him. In my opinion, um, how big of a jump can Parquet take offensively? And his jump shot looked really good at the end of this past season um, because he's a wonderful defender. So if you can get some offensive contribution from him, he can be like a 20-minute-a-game player. And then like then you get down to the forwards. Like like, is Jariah Horn going to be a consistent scorer? Um, is Jabari Walker going to be like anything his first year? Because I don't really know much about. Him. And then, like, we really don't know much about the silver. I would not
0: expect anything out of Walker, um, production wise this year. He's so young, you know, he's he's 17, I think, is what he said, and he's so skinny. He has plenty of skill and athleticism. Um, I, I mean, his shot is really smooth too, but I asking him to do anything on the defensive end seems like a stretch right now. And we know that's when Tad feels comfortable playing freshmen is when he thinks he can play them on defense. So I asking him to do anything or expect him to be anything next year is tough. I I'm thinking offensively the, the best allegory for this offense next year might be that 2012, 2013 pac 12 championship team, honestly. Um, because i i think horn can fill some of that carlin brown role of just being the go-to scorer who's going to put up a lot of shots but you know you can give the ball to him near the end of the the shot clock you have a four general point guard though mckinley offers way more than nate tomlinson did at that point in time
1: <laughs> by 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 quite a lot yeah mckinley you by, have okay never
0: you don't really have anyone like roberson but you you kind of have a garbage man um that can fill that role in (sighs) Schwartz. The the Schwartz could take more shots. It's not an exact one-to-one, but that team had consistent ball handling on the perimeter. That team had not a lot of post options. You know, Austin Dufault, I guess, could be your Deshaun Schwartz thing. I mean, he's also kind of like Evan Batty on offense. Um, This is a very loose comparison. Yeah, but basically what I'm trying to say is they had ball handling. They had guys who would take shots often and they had not a lot of interior offense to look at um the thing is that team was also ridiculously good on defense i don't know if this one will be
1: no i don't think it will be i think actually this this reminds me more of like like the dayton team from the past year or two um the ones that just try to get as much skill as possible on the floor and they have a lot of pieces that they don't really know if they're going to fit until it happens. Um, obviously, the Dayton team clicked a lot, but I think that this could be similarly viewed to them entering the season. Well, I mean, there's no Obi topping though. <laughs> there's, there's no one like that. I know. But, like, that's fair. But I think that your supporting characters are more proven than their guys. Um, yeah, I don't know. Um, are we done? I, I, I'm stalling
0: out. Yeah, we can be done. I don't know. It was a really good job by by Tad to I think upgrade at least two out of the three open scholarships he didn't expect, um, and doing
1: a good job on the third. Good job. Okay, so we have our next activity, which um, SB Nation is doing the thing this week um, of looking at a team's or a football program's best team that didn't win a championship, and so. Immediately, CU has two teams that stand out very much, two teams that probably should have won a championship, or one team that should have, one team that could have, um, before you get into the the, the deeper cuts that we can do. I was about to say, to-
0: I'm, I'm telling you now, some old heads are going to say there's at least three teams that, that didn't win a championship that might be better than the team that did.
1: I don't know the Eddie Crowder team, so I'm not going to pretend I did. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry if Ken Johnson deserved to be drafted in our all-time mock draft. (laughs) Continue. Okay, Um, so first off, we have we're going to go chronological order because it's easier. Tell me about the nineteen eighty-nine Colorado Buffaloes. Um,
0: I mean, some people would say that nineteen eighty-nine. Some people, maybe me, would say that nineteen eighty-nine was a better overall roster than 1990 um I mean obviously 1990's senior leadership was insane um but 1989 had a lot of talent and if it wasn't for me Notre Dame they probably would have also won so you're looking at guys like um Mike Pritchard out in the side he was obviously still there you Hagan. Um, In his, I think, second year as a starter, Eric bien before his senior year, all guys that stayed um, for 1990. However, you also have guys like Jeff Campbell on the outside, who was a complete speedster, right? And he really blew the top off of the defense. Um, Mike Pritchard was everywhere, but Jeff Campbell was also really good at special teams, returning punts. Um, You had a really good senior offensive line, which was good. Um, Canavis McGee and Alfred Williams are both still there. Uh, Joel Steed was still in the middle as well. Um, And of course you have the best punter of all time, Tom Ruin. Basically that team probably, if it wasn't for the fifth down, obviously 1990 made it to, wouldn't have made it to the national championship. This 1989 team, this 89 team, man, uh, if Notre Dame wasn't there, probably would be un- – I mean, obviously, they would have been an undisputed champion. They were number one going in the national championship game.
1: Yeah, they so, ran- just a, just a, so just a summary, this team was, like, 11-0, and 0, uh, and then they went to the Orange Bowl to play Notre Dame. And I mean, they, they
0: won- ran one of the hardest tables in the country. Like, CU at that time was always playing one of the hardest schedules in the country, but they did not lose – And they played, I think it was seven ranked teams or eight ranked teams that year. Um, They played Texas early. They played uh, ranked Illinois with my boy Jeff George, a quarterback, and just demolished them. Um, They played a Washington under Don James that would go on to win a national title in 91. um, And they demolished those guys. They killed Iowa State, beat Missouri, those two cupcakes, killed Kansas. Oklahoma at that time was pretty bad. They wrecked them. Um, they beat Nebraska. That was a two-versus-three matchup, 27-21. That was, I believe, um, I think that was a Hagan to Flanagan year. Um, and then they oh, yes, it was. finished up with two cupcakes, 41-17 against OSU, 40, 59-11 against KSU, and then just got beat by Notre Dame, which is annoying because no one else yeah, so to Notre
1: Dame. Yeah, that Notre Dame team finished second in the AP poll. They had Ricky Waters, who I, I adore. Um, and then they had Rocket Ismail. Um I don't know who the defense is because sports reference doesn't have the defensive rosters for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, like the, I think you oversold the schedule a little bit because, um, I mean, there was the two non-conference games against Illinois and Washington.
0: And um, Texas at the time was
1: non-conference. Oh yeah. But like, yeah, uh, Texas wasn't ranked preseason which is ridiculous because Texas is ranked every preseason nowadays, no matter what of the goodness they have. Um, and then they had the, the home game against Nebraska, and those were their three ranked games. Otherwise, it was like like the Big Eight did have some weaker teams at that point, but they did blow out those, like, bad. I
0: will say Oklahoma was not ranked when they played Colorado, but they were ranked every week prior, so they were solid. Hey, I thought you said they sucked. They did suck, but they were they sh- were ranked every week before. They went okay. seven and four that year. They um okay. they basically beat up on a lot of very bad teams and lost to everyone that was good.
1: Okay, so the two thousand eighteen Buffalo. Um, <laughs> huh. So okay, so the case for them. This is the team, by the way. Like, they had the emotional. Uh, it was an emotional roller coaster, right? Uh, yes, this was he, the
0: year that I think every game started with a pointing at the sky for Salonessi. Salonessi was in the press box for the Illinois drubbing. Um, this was the year that he truly went like downhill and passed away during this season.
1: Yeah, and so Darian Hagan stepped up. And I don't like fundamentally the option offense that they had. Darian Hagan had more rushing yards than he had passing yards. Um, mm-hmm. He threw four touchdown passes. And ran for seventeen. I think he finished – did he finish, like, second in the Heisman? Um, I believe did Hagen work? was top five in the – I don't know if he got a New York he, invite. He finished but. fifth in the Heisman. Um, J.J. Flanagan and Eric bien were his two wonderful running backs. And then you have Mike Pritchard, who – so all the times people were comparing, like, Levisca Chenault would be, like, the most gifted receiver ever. It was always like, oh, but what about Mike Pritchard? and I didn't know who Mike Pritchard was because he had 12 catches for 300 yards that season. <laughs> and he was their leading receiver. Right, but he also
0: was a ridiculous athlete, and 1990 really showed yes, his versatility.
1: I, I, I get it. It's just I didn't know he existed because he would put up, like, maybe 400 yards in the season. I, I also see that him and Jeff Campbell, like, like these receivers all averaged, like, over 24 yards per catch. So it was all just dots that they were catching, which is absurd.
0: I mean, the main difference between 89 and 90, I think, is you lose the Flanagan in 90, but that, I mean, Eric bien did just fine in his absence. And then you also lose guys like Jeff Campbell and some of the uh, more senior offensive linemen, because they were – that line was also
1: absolutely insane. I I think you're underselling um, Eric bien 1990 season because he did finish third in the Heisman. So, you know, like, saying he did just fine—that's a little underdog.
0: Houston, <laughs> I, I don't know if he ever really broke away, like um, Flanagan could.
1: Okay, that's fair. Um, yeah. Also, like this, their rushing attack was insane. Hagan had five point four yards per carry. Flanagan seven point two. enemy six point four. If you're running like that with that offensive line, that's absurd. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so why didn't they win the national championship? they, what, what did Notre Dame do to kind of beat them? Um, well,
0: I, I guess zealots like me and, uh, maybe other more conspiracy theory fanatics out there would say that he, Lou Holtz cheated, but, um, <laughs> I don't know if people would agree. Lou Holtz was, I mean, he's still pretty good X's and O's cor- coach and that defense that they had was salty as hell. So, um, he's, the extra time to prepare for the option really helps. Um, and they had a lot of time in between their game and the national championship game, which was on January 1st. So that helped him get some schemes in that he needed. Uh, they had a ridiculous defensive line led by a guy named Chris Zurich, who was unbelievable, got drafted to the NFL. Um, and that, you know, they could basically hold the line with four guys and be okay. Um, I don't know. He did a lot of things that worked. I don't necessarily agree with a lot of things they did, but he did a lot of things that worked for him.
1: So, do you think that that team, top to bottom, is better than the nineteen ninety national championship team? I don't agree with that. Okay.
0: But they're good. I mean, a lot of the same actors, just that they got older in nineteen ninety and were more pissed off. So. Oh,
1: okay. Yeah, that that, that fits. Well. Um, okay. So then. We're going to move on to the 1994 team, which, from what I believe, you think that this is the most talented team. Yeah,
0: this... this If Cornell Stewart could beat Nebraska, this team would be undoubtedly the best team in CU history, I think. Um, another murderers think? row over schedule. And this one is way harder to dispute, Sam. Um no, no, no.
1: no. I agree with you. That's why I was... Criticizing the '89 schedules because I have that tab open and the '94 tab open, <laughs> and like this is an absurd schedule that we're about.
0: It's another time they beat Texas. This was an actually pretty okay Texas.
1: Right, um, they on the road. Yes,
0: and this was with um, uh, I, who was a running back at this time? Priest oh. Holmes. Priest, Priest Holmes was the Texas running back. Yeah. They went from Priest Holmes to Ricky Williams. Yeah, and then from Ricky Williams to Cedric Benson, I believe. Or that maybe oh, there's gosh. one in between. And then from Cedric Benson to Jamal Charles, it's crazy. But anyways, um, they beat a bunch of really, really, really good teams. They lost to one really, really, really good team on the road, and that was the 1994 Tom Osborne, Nebraska, um, who ran away with the title. Um, a lot of
1: people think that's the best ever college football team.
0: Yeah, their offensive line was insane, it up, but still insane. They, <laughs> they had a guy named Tommy Frazier backing up a guy named Brooke Beringer. Um, both of them are really, really good option quarterbacks. They had fucking
1: Lawrence Phillips inexplicably on the roster.
0: Right, I'm I'm gonna say if you take 16 touchdowns away from this team, they probably don't win the national championship because presumably, um. Federal criminals shouldn't be playing college football, but you know, whatever. I I don't make the decisions, um. And I wasn't even alive back then, so, anyways, um. <laughs> bad timing for this team to be the best CU most talented CU team because of a lot of other really really talented teams
1: this year. Yeah, to, um, and to round out the schedule, by the way, they second game of the season they beat the hell out of Wisconsin. Wisconsin was ranked number ten. It ended fifty five seventeen. Then they beat Nebraska or they beat Michigan on the road with the catch that everybody knows. Um they beat Texas on the road, they beat Oklahoma and Kansas State handily at home. They uh then they beat the hell out of Notre Dame in the final Fiesta Bowl. Which I don't I was gonna ask you, why did CU play Notre Dame in all three of these seasons?
0: Um I guess I don't know about this one. The other two is because it's it's AP poll, and then if you get voted into the final, the national championship matchup, which is generally was the Orange Bowl, I think, for, for both of those years, then you play each other. So that year, those two years, they were just the two best teams.
1: Okay, and then this was an unranked Notre Dame, which is kind of, it's just funny that all these seasons ended with Notre Dame, and I've never really felt a Notre Dame rivalry. Um, I don't
0: really know if- if you look up Lou Holtz and, and learn more about Lou Holtz, you will hate Lou Holtz.
1: That's just how it goes. I, I I don't like him as is. I don't know anything about him other than his on-air presence. Um.
0: Yeah. He basically will tank a program to make himself look better than leave, um, and then the program has to deal with his wake later. Anyways, um, this team had nine players on the just the offensive side of the ball go to the NFL. Um. All three quarterbacks in the quarterback room went to the NFL, which makes sense. If you look at that, it makes sense why Rick Neuheisel, who was the quarterback's coach at the time, got the head coaching job. You obviously have a Heisen winner who rushed over 10, 2,000 yards and Rashawn Salam that you could just give the ball to over and over again. The very funny thing to me is one of his backup running backs that made it to the NFL is Matt Lepsis,
1: who started the for the hell? Broncos in the Super Bowl. Wait, Matt Lepsis was a running back? Yes, this year, yeah. Holy hell, he so he's the starting left tackle in the Super Bowl-winning Broncos. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, you guys like Marlon Barnes also in the backfield who made the NFL. Herschel Troutman, Troutman was just super solid. Um, this was the one of the first years that McCartney got oh, okay.
1: And just like the, the the summary of the roster, they had Cornell Stewart at quarterback, uh, Rashawn Salam at running back. Um, and then the receivers was a pretty... I am going to say Murderers Row well for the bit, but they had Michael Westbrook <laughs> and Ray Caruth. Oh, and yikes. Phil, and then Phil Savoy. Um, and then at tight end, they had um, Christian Fourier. All-American. Um, yeah, all-American. all, all American, Christian Fourier. Fourier um, whose nephew is going to be on the... the no, tour. his son. His son, sorry. Um... And then uh, defensively, you have uh, Matt Russell, who won the uh, Buckus Award. You have Chris Hudson, who's an All-American defensive back. Um, uh, Who am I missing? Well,
0: Chris Hudson was not only an All-American. He won the Thorpe Award, I'm pretty sure. Uh,
1: I don't think he did. I think he was a runner-up. Let's look it up. 1994 Thorpe Award. I think Dion Figures was the only one who won the award. That is not true, but...
0: Mm. Continue. No, no, no. Keep talking yourself wrong. Wait, did uh,
1: Hudson win the Thorpe Award? Chris Hudson won the Thorpe Award, yeah.
0: Mm. All right. So the one of,
1: hold on. Uh, One, two, three, four. Yeah, he was. CJ Cunningham was also on the team. Yeah. Uh you know what's an
0: interesting thing is Greg Myers won it the year after Chris Hudson won it and Greg Myers went to
1: CSU. Oh, I didn't know that. That's strange. Um who who so who else on that team that I missed?
0: Um well, I mean you did you get Matt Russell? I did. You got Greg Biker?
1: No, I did not, and he was a fucking badass who yep. also from. Obama, so shout out to that. Long run, although he went to
0: the school. Um. Oh, sorry. That's the Knights 1990 team. Um. I mean Ted Johnson also a really good running mate to Matt Russell in the linebacking core. Uh, Dalton Simmons was a solid safety. Um. I mean Shannon Clavel, who. Oh, jeez. Trust I believe is, Derek McCartney's father. I'm trying to remember, but, he was a. Pretty, really active. Remember that defensive line? Um, the other NFL guy that we did not mention that's on the offensive line um,
1: is... Chris, Chris Naoli. Yeah. Might Chris Naoli, bad. who's an oh, absolute beast. The Ralphie Report profile picture. That's correct. Yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs> that's his That's his crowning achievement. Clavel was also drafted, just so we all know. Um, so that team... I mean... It makes sense that Bill McCartney left. He obviously had personal stuff going on that made him leave, but this was going to be, should have been his high mark. This should have been the 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 point in which you can recruit up to after this year. Um, and then he left and it fell apart. But this year was, to me, the pinnacle of what he was trying to do. Away from the option, this was a full dual-threat offense with the ultimate dual-threat quarterback in Cordell Stewart. Just unbelievable. The best running back naturally, I mean, talent-wise, at least, in CU history, and Rashawn Salam, who had the best year ever. And you had...
1: Uh, Like, you had freaks that receiver, too.
0: Right. I mean, Michael Westbrook and Phil Savoy um, are both gigantic people who loved to block. Michael Westbrook also happened to be a really good pass catcher and an All-American. Phil Savoy is exactly who I want as a wide receiver. He's just 6'4 and 220. He's going to throw you into the dirt. Um... And you had a guy like Caleb Fourier um, on the outside. Sorry, is it Christian? I don't know. Christian or Caleb, one of them. It's Christian Fourier. Caleb is the recruit. Caleb's Uh, son. Okay, Christian Fourier, who's, you know, top two tight end in the CU history. Unbelievable.
1: Yeah, and, like, jokes aside, dark shit aside, Ray Carruth is a really good receiver. Well, yeah, there's a reason he was drafted so high.
0: He was he, he was the speedster you needed next to those two monsters. Um before we leave, I'm gonna I'm gonna make sure we can get ahead of the controversy before we leave. Nineteen seventy also is a candidate for the best team to not win a championship. I was gonna say, yeah, you know, nineteen
1: ninety four was probably the best offense that you have ever had. They just ran through their schedule, put up points on points on points on everybody.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, honestly like,
0: I, and this is going to be a hot take top five offense in college football history. I think
1: that is a very hot take. Um, I'm curious how it would hold up. Um, so yeah, that team probably should have won a national championship, but they ran into Nebraska. Um, and that's that, that's, that's your best team. So go through 1970. Just real quick, uh, you
0: have guys like Herb Orvis, who's a hall of famer on defense, you have uh, John Stearns at defensive back, who I believe is CU's only baseball draft pick ever. Wait, do, um,
1: do you? 1971,
0: because 1970 went 6-5. and five. Yes, I do mean 1971. Thank you. Okay. Oh, magically. No, John Stearns is still there. Um, you have guys like um, Cliff Branch, taking the top off the defense, who should be in the NFL Hall of Fame. Bo Matthews, who is CU's highest draft pick ever, number two overall. Um, freak athlete at running back. Charlie Davis, also amazing, just a steady Eddie guy. Um, you know, they had three running backs, four running backs go to the NFL from this team. Um, and you have a guy like Ken Johnson, who was actually a really good passer for that time frame. He had doubled the amount of touchdowns that Damian Hagan had 20 years ago. Um, um, Jamie Kane, Kane, great tight end. Yeah.
1: Just a lot of probably talent on this team. Yeah, probably second best tight end. Um, who passed way too early. Very good. Um I don't know who the defenders are. I don't see any listed. You said Herb Orvis. I'm gonna go with that. <laughs> here's a
0: here's a fun Okay, this is this is the main reason this team is famous. This is still the only time that any conference has gotten has ended a season with the numbers one, two, and three all from the same conference. See you yeah, number three, so, who's number one and who's number
1: two, Sam? So so this team they lost they went 10 and two, finished number three, but they got blown out on the road against Oklahoma and then Nebraska and I think Oklahoma finished number one. is that true?
0: No, Nebraska's number one, and this was Bob Delaney, Nebraska, I believe. yeah, Bob, Bob Devaney, Nebraska, and this was uh, the fun second fun part is this is the Chuck Fairbanks, Oklahoma. God. Chuck Fairbanks, who almost ruined CU's football program, he was the leading the guy leading the eleven and one Oklahoma Sooners.
1: Holy hell, the Oklahoma team ran the options to perfection. Yeah, thirty eight rushing touchdowns between the quarterback
0: and running back. Mm-hmm. And I mean, CU like beat up on good teams. They beat up on Ohio State. They beat up on LSU. Beat up on Houston, who was 15 at the time. These are good teams that they're beating. They just couldn't beat the two best teams, probably in Big Eight history, because they happened to be in the same year. Just a great year, fun year.
1: Any other contenders for MCU? What about the old Wizard White? Days? I'm I can't, I'm not going to go that far. Pre-World War II, different <laughs> game. I'm just kidding. Um, I'm just looking at the their finishes. They really were not very good at football until. Eddie Crowder came over. Or until Dal Board kind of built it. What are you talking about? No, I'm looking they didn't finish I mean okay, I guess they had six and O's before the AP poll started. Okay. The only
0: decade that CU has not oh, won might. a conference championship in is twenty ten to
1: twenty twenty. I, I I missed that. <laughs> um wait, what did you say? The only decade oh so the twenty ten. I believe. And I think maybe the 1970s.
0: But, I oh, geez. Let's end before I make myself look too
1: dumb. (laughs) Okay. Um, We can finish with that. I would also give an honorable mention to the 2001 Buffaloes, but they went 10 and 3 and got blown up by Oregon in the the Holiday Bowl. Or in the Fiesta Bowl. Mm, mm
0: -hmm. They, They shot themselves in the foot too much to be considered here.
1: Yeah, they also lost to Texas 41-7, to and they lost the opening uh, game to Fresno State. Mm-hmm. So, All right. best basketball team, just say basketball team, best team, basketball team to ever win a championship. Well, I mean, no one
0: has ever won a championship, so I'm just going to go with the best basketball team this year's ever had, which I believe is 1971 also.
1: Okay, I have no proof, I have no evidence, no knowledge of the past. So I'll go with that too. 1968 is what I mean. Okay, 1969 you mean? Because they had Cliff Mealy. 68, 69. Okay, there we go. Great. Alright. <laughs> that was Do it, that. goodbye. Busk! Busk! <laughs> Busk! Buffs!